Well, if you would, one last time, turn to the book of Jude. We're looking at the last two verses of that letter. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now, if you know, as you followed this particular letter, just these 25 verses, you know that Jude, in one sense, points a dire picture of the church. False teachers will bring their division, their gossip, their rejection of authority, their immorality, and they will upset and try to lead astray the church of our Lord. But, Jude reminds us, we know this, and because of that, it is a norm in this church age. We should be encouraged that there are false teachers, for after all, this is part of God's plan. It is his purpose in this time period. And so we must prepare ourselves to be discerning. But even this can bring fear and trepidation. After all, how will we know, how will we discern, how will we be able to tell who is false and who is true? This might bring true fear and trepidation if it were not for these last two verses of Jude's doxology. A wonderful doxology. You've probably heard many times and didn't even know perhaps it was from the book of Jude. Follow along as I read this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray this. These words are a prayer to glorify you for who you are, for what you are capable of doing, and for what you will do for the church. We pray that we might understand these words, be encouraged by them, and stand upon the promises therein. Lord, I pray that you will help all of us to be thinking of thoughts and these words that I speak, that they would be pleasing in your sight, that they would be consistent with your word and your precious promise in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to briefly just mention a couple of other scripture passages from the minor prophets because they reminded me of this. You see, the first little section here says, Now to him who is able to keep you. And I thought, first of all, of Amos chapter 7. Maybe you remember or are familiar with these words. Maybe you're not. In Amos chapter 7, Amos gets a vision he gets a vision of locusts eating the mown grass of the nation of Israel. And Amos looks and, and feels the weight of that vision upon God's people. And he says to God when he sees that vision of the locusts, those insects eating the grass, he says, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. And as Amos says this, God intervenes and interacts with Amos and he says this will not happen and it says that the Lord relented and then Amos sees another vision in that same chapter and in this vision there's a fire of judgment that's consuming the nation of Israel and Amos once again feels the weight and the burden of that particular vision and he repeats his words he says to the Lord how can Jacob stand he is so small 
And it says the Lord relented. And then the other passage that I was looking at was also from the Minor Prophets. It's from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, and this is the verse. It says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see a plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Small things, small churches, small people of God. Even in the days of Amos and Zechariah, the things seemed just impossible that God would maintain the church, that God would preserve and protect a people for himself. In fact, in the New Testament, when we get there, we see Jesus saying that the way to the Lord is narrow. There's a narrow gate. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate through which we must enter. And we sometimes ask, how can the church survive the day of false teachers? If it is true that throughout this entire time period, from the time that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven until the time that Jesus comes back, if through that entire time period there will be false teachers in the church, how is it that God will protect us? After all, we know that in some places and in some time periods the church seems so small. Well, this doxology reminds us of the words that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, they said, the Lord is able to save us from the fire. Jude says here, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. First of all, God is able. Secondly, God is unique. Thirdly, God is worthy. He is able now, I don't know anybody named Abel, although there have been at times people I've been aware of who were named Abel. There was Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, but that's not the Abel we're talking about. This Abel is the ability to do something, the ability in this case to preserve and protect the church, and as it says here, to do two particular things. One, to keep us from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, what does that mean, to keep us from stumbling? Here we are in this letter warning us of false teachers and warning us of the dangers of rejecting authority and falling into sexual immorality. He's warning us of the dangers of those false teachers who will divide and create divisions and followers and who in the end are interested in filling their own appetites rather than in protecting and preserving the people of God. If you're in a church that's had a false teacher, you know that it can be divisive, it can be upending, it can even destroy a church and make the doors close. You know that if we were to go around every day in our church and just be afraid of the false teacher who would come and upset the people, many of us would start to stumble. Is that not the case? When a church suffers through false teaching, there are always some who stumble even to go back to a church to worship. There are those who will stumble into the false teaching and involve themselves in the immorality that they promote. And so it says that they will keep us from stumbling. First of all, in our own walk. You see, you and I, as the hymn writer says, 
are prone to wander, aren't we? We're prone to wander. If we deliberately skip a day of worship, it's so much easier the next week to do the same thing. If we fall into one particular temptation, it's so easy to fall into it the next time. If we tell a little white lie, what's a little bit bigger white lie after all? If we involve ourselves in coarse talk, what is it that the next joke might bring in laughter? We stumble so easily in our own walk. But we also stumble in who we follow. Sometimes we have a tendency to follow those who are not in the word or consistent in the word of God. And we follow false teachers in this sense. They sound good. They might have good uh, things to say. They might have good advice, good counsel of those things. And we might follow them. And we might suddenly realize at some point that who we have been following is not even a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, despite all this tendency, despite this proneness to wander, Despite our stumbling and bumbling as believers, God is able to keep us from it. God is able. The other thing he's able to do is to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now you might think that to keep some, somebody from stumbling is perhaps a harder thing than to present someone blameless. And yet, look at who we are. Look at who we are. We have stains, don't we? We have stains of things that we've said, stains of things that we have thought, stains of our past sins, stains that can make us so that we would never be blameless in the sight of God. In the presence of the glory of God, if we were to present all of our righteous acts, what do the scriptures tell us? They're filthy rags. We can't possibly be blameless because if you're blameless, that means you've never done anything wrong. You can't be blamed for anything. But God is able to present us blameless. It's a miracle. It's a miraculous transformation that by faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are placed on him. His righteousness is given to us so that when we're presented to God, he does not see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness and blameless life. God is able to make that transition possible. We call it, first of all, the act of justification. That is, when he justifies us because of our faith, he takes that faith and he does that transaction, and as we tell our Sunday school kids, it's just as if we have never sinned. He has justified us. We are blameless now in his presence. Our standing before God is one of someone who has no more sin, has no more consequences of that sin upon us. They were placed on Christ. But it's not only the act of justification, it's also the work of sanctification. He continues to work in us and through us to transform us. It says in scriptures to conform us to the image of Christ. That is to take us from what we were, scoundrels, sinners in every description, so that now he would take us and say you are a new creation in Christ. You were this, but now you're something else. Now you are in Christ. You are forgiven. 
Your identity is different. God is able to do this. This is one of the great confrontations of our day. Even in the church, those false teachers who will tell us God is not able to change us from sinners to saints. And yet scripture reminds us God is able to present us blameless in the presence of the glory of God. I remember now that our daughter is turning 20. It's now been 21 years since we were married, my wife and I. And I remember on the wedding day, my wife had gotten her grandmother to agree to give us flowers for the wedding. The wedding was at our church. The wedding day was quickly approaching. And just the day before, when we were supposed to go out and get the flowers, her grandmother said, I don't want you getting the flowers out of my garden. What do you do? We wanted flowers in the wedding. It was kind of a normal thing. We hadn't prepared to pay for a bunch of flowers, particularly at the last minute. And now there weren't going to be flowers at the wedding. The beauty that we wanted presented in that building where we were getting married particularly since we were getting married in the fellowship hall rather than the sanctuary because we thought there might be a big crowd. And we wanted the flowers. At the last minute, a member of the church said, said, we know somebody you can get the flowers from. Why don't you get them from here? And we did. We got flowers, and perhaps many of the people there didn't even know the difference. A last-minute supply at the last time possible to bring those flowers for the wedding to present that sanctuary that fellowship hall as a place of beauty and a place where we saw the wonders of God's provision this is what it's like when we think that everything is lost nothing can happen to preserve the church no way can God present the muck and mire of our sinful beings to his presence and present it in a glorious, beautiful fashion, yet God is able to remove that from us and to present us blameless and to preserve us, even to keep us from stumbling as he sanctifies us through and through. God is able. Isn't that one of the great promises of Scripture? God is able. It doesn't mean that in every circumstance he's going to do what we want him to do, or in every circumstance he's going to stop us from falling into the temptation to sin, or in every circumstance he's going to present us from trials and tribulation, but he is able. He is able to do that. But God is also unique, isn't he? Notice what 25 says. To the only God our Savior. We say that and we say, of course. We're monotheists, after all. We believe there is one God. But the words here, the only God. This is a claim of exclusivity. In fact, if we turn to Acts 4, verse 12, it says there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is one, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one triune God, Father, Son, and spirit. Because there is only one God, we're claiming that there is only one divinity. There is only one divine being who really exists in this world, or really outside this world, because he's the creator of all things, who interacts with this world. There's only one. There's only one God who is able. There is only one God who transforms sinners into saints. There is only one God who is our Savior. The only God, 
our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's not another. You see, in this passage, it's so important in the context to be reminded of this particular truth because these false teachers are at times going to say that there is another. They might be even on the pretense coming in for the first time, very moral people, very charismatic people, very gifted people who come and as time goes by, they begin to teach another Savior. Perhaps they're teaching that we could pray to a saint. Perhaps they're teaching that there are several ways in order to get to God. Perhaps they're teaching that all religions are basically the same and they all point to God in one way or another. But the scriptures say there's only one God, there's only one Savior. And notice the Trinitarian participation in this. So the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, first of all, we see God the Father, we see Jesus the Son. We also understand here the importance of the Spirit. In verse 19 of this book, it says, Those who cause divisions, worldly people, are devoid of the Spirit. The Spirit is so very important here. The Trinitarian participation, this unique God, it's hard for us to comprehend and understand in some ways that he can be three in one. What, what a difficult concept to understand. God is unique. I want to ask you for a minute if you've ever been in one of those walk-in closets of somebody who loves clothes. You ever been in one of those closets where there is several racks and item of clothing after item of clothing, perhaps there's a section of dresses and there's a, a section of, of shirts or blouses. There, there are sections of, of coats or jackets and, and, and everything. Someone who loves clothes, uh, they have this deep closet and lots of choices. I can imagine going in there trying to find something to wear. And you're going through it. This looks good. This looks good. Uh, this is interesting. How does this match with this over here? And you're going through all of these things to wear. Our culture and our society, sometimes even the church does this with saviors, don't they? This savior over here, he looks good. He provides for me relief from pain. This savior over here, he looks good. He gives me pleasure. This Savior over here, he looks good. He has plans and ideas to satisfy my wisdom and my knowledge. This Savior over here sounds so wonderful because it looks like he can solve my problems. Perhaps if we got the right politician in office, or perhaps if we got the right way to avoid pain and problems, or perhaps if we got the right situation so we can smooth over our differences. And we look for saviors in so many places. But we're reminded by Jude what Paul said to Timothy. There is one God, one Savior. In 1 Timothy 2.5 he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. One. There's only one God. And this is so important in the context of the book of Jude, which is warning us that in this time period there will be those who preach other saviors. There will be those who pretend to be saviors themselves and make the church people dependent upon them. There are those who would say, there's no other teacher like me. 
And so I want you to follow me. And yet they're not pointing to the one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude reminds us that in all these circumstances, we must, we must be of Jesus Christ. Because the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, is the one who is able to present us blameless in the presence of the glorious God. God is able. God is unique. But God is also worthy. This is what we remember at the end of a doxology. It's all about God, isn't it? And it should be. Our lives must be all about God, not ourselves. Our church must all be about God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father. It must be about Him alone. Here it says, To Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You see, God is worthy, first of all, of our gratitude. Of our gratitude. Notice what it said at the end of verse 24 when he presents us before the presence of his glory. It's with great joy. It's with great joy. Now I have to say, in, in normal everyday life, I'm understated. I'm not someone who's necessarily going to shout loud triumphs of joy every moment. I'm understated. In fact, it, it asked my wife when I like a meal that she's cooked, I've had to learn to say, yes, this is good. Because after all, I normally would say, well, that's okay. And she'd say, oh, no, it's not any good. And yet over 20 years, she's learned to understand me, and I've learned to compromise my response to joy of the cooked meal. And here it is, our gratitude. God deserves it. When he's able to present us and transform us from sinners to saints before his presence, how could we do this but with great joy? And in that great joy, we understand we give him our glory. To him be glory. It's not our glory after all. It's actually his glory that he gives to us. When he makes us blameless, it's not because we earned it or deserved it somehow. We weren't blameless beforehand. After all, he has to keep us from stumbling. So we're reminded here that his glory is due to him. But it's not just our gratitude mixed with the glory due the king of kings. It's also our submission. Notice the other things we're supposed to give. There's three things. They're right here in your scripture. Majesty, dominion, and authority. Those things belong to God now and forever. These things remind us of our need to submit to him. First of all, majesty. This is a description of who he is and what he's like. Majesty is something that we ascribe to royalty. After all, what do you say when you talk to a king? Your majesty. Here it is, a reminder of a position and a title. God is king. We are to give him his deserved title, which ascribes to him majesty. Second, dominion or power. We talked a little bit about dominion in Sunday school this morning, how God has given 
people made in the image of God, dominion over all of creation, and yet we're reminded that in this dominion we serve another. Over us, as those who are vice-regents over creation, is the regent, the king, God himself. And so dominion belongs to him. We have no right to do just whatever we please. We submit to him by giving him dominion. That's not as if we can take it away from him, but we can act as if that dominion does not exist. This last week, everybody has been asking me about my son who entered the military. And I know that the last thing I texted him before he went in, and then again this afternoon, the last thing I texted him in the hour we got to text back and forth was this. Remember to whom you belong and who you serve. My son serves a boss. It's the United States government in the form of a drill sergeant. And yet, in the end, he's not giving dominion to that individual in the same sense that he's giving dominion to God. You see, even that drill sergeant has to answer to God. And in the church, we recognize that even though we may have bosses to whom we submit, even though we have parents to whom we must submit, even though we have others that we must submit to, teachers or whoever it might be, we understand that in the end, our God is the true God of Israel, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You see, lordship, lordship is so important as we understand true teaching in the scriptures as Jude tells us and warns us against these false teachers, these false teachers were rejecting authority. That was one of the key landmarks of their teaching, was that they were teaching it was not important to live a holy life. It was not important to follow the authorities of the day. Instead, they sought their own authority and rejected God. And here, we sometimes say in our situation, we need to make Jesus our Savior and our Lord. Yes, it's true. We, Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. We don't make him that way. He already is that. But we recognize his lordship. When we come to him in faith, we recognize that he is Lord. He is the king. And thus we submit to him, recognizing that he has dominion over us. And therefore, that last word, authority. We live in a day and age where everybody wants to reject authority. Whether it's because of the circumstances going on in France right now, where over 3,000 people have been arrested in riots, and hundreds of policemen have been injured. Whether it's the protests that take place periodically in our own country, perhaps even initially protests that may have started with all honesty to seek true justice in our land or to seek one thing or another, Yet, in the end, so often it becomes a repudiation of authority. And they won't give it to those who are in authority. They won't submit to it. We are taught in our movies and in our songs and in our edu education and, and entertainment both. We're, we're taught that by and large we are our own authority. You can be whoever you want to be and run over other people to get it, rejecting every authority known to man, particularly the family and the church. And yet, 
if we understand who God is, we understand he is our legitimate authority of all things, whether police, whether government officials, whether parents or teachers, whether bosses in the workplace, whoever it might be, of all of these people, even the small amounts of authority that God has given them in their particular offices, yet in the end, God deserves all of our submission, and we give him authority forever and ever. What a key. What a key to understand how we should mark and understand and discern false teaching from true teaching. True teachers submit to the authority of God, recognize his power, and are in awe at his majesty. He is the king. So when we see this doxology, let us be reminded, first of all, he is able. You know that song, perhaps. He's able, he's able. I know he is able. I know the Lord is able to carry us through. What an important understanding from this passage. God is able. But he's able to carry us through what? Through persecution, through trials, through tribulations, through even false teachers and division and destruction. But he is able because he is king. All the glory and majesty and power and authority belong to him. He is able thus to keep us safe and secure. In fact, what do the scriptures remind us? If the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, how can false teachers? By God's grace, he will carry us through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short letter. We spent an excessive amount of time on it. Lord, we've looked at it verse by verse for the most part. You, Lord, it is a portion of your word which is living and active, can transform us and change us by the power of your spirit. Lord, as we confront the issue presented in this letter, that there will be false teachers in the age of the church, let us be reminded that by your grace, you are able to get us through. By your grace, you will keep us safe and secure. By your grace, you can keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before your glorious presence. What wonderful words to bring comfort and encouragement in dark days. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.